Hey guys, welcome back to Pucks and Pages. It's the podcast where a couple tries to force their hobbies on one another. We're going to be discussing the latest in books and sports. My name's Steven. Just heard my wife, Liberty. So let's get into it. The latest is football scores, because no one else is playing right now. You mean like football scores? I'm sorry, soccer. My team, Manchester United, drew out against Tottenham. Not the start I wanted, but we played. Hey, you know, it's just the first game back. Some of the players needed some rest. They're doing water breaks that, in the game, which is so kind of weird. I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, I don't remember the last time I had a water break sh- playing sports shy of like maybe when I was 10. So it's kind of interesting to have that included. Yeah. And Dortmund won versus Leipzig. Yeah, you guys took a 2-0 win over Red Bull Leipzig's or Leipzig. And, no uh, one can say it right. Yeah, I'm just going to butcher it all day long. Um, and then earlier in the week, 2-0 loss to Mons. You had to bring that up. Oh, of course. Let's just focus on the two beautiful goals from Holland. I uh, need him to be, like, the player in every single game. Well, it seems like your team's getting more and more good news out of the camp. You know, they, they announced that they're trying everything they can not to trade Jaden Sancho away. Mm-hmm. And that is a terrifying combination if Jaden Sancho and Eric Holland are just together as one. It's going to be absolutely Well, terrifying. they're not getting married. They're playing soccer. But... Well, you know, it's allowed in Germany. So if they <laughs> decided to... And then Dortmund, or not Dortmund, but Bayern Munich this week also had two victories. Uh, we had a 1-0 win over Werder Bremen, which uh, clinched our eighth straight Bundesliga championship title. And I I'm going to be Werder hearing that. about that for like a year. Yeah, I'm hoping next year uh, you'll hear about it and it'll be nine instead of just eight. How about we just go nine for that and move on? Oh, okay. And then later in the week, we won 3-1 over uh, Freiburg or Freiburg. Goals were by Kimmich and two by Lewandowski. Or, or as we call him. Lewandowski. Yeah. With that second goal, Lewandowski actually set a record for most goals in the season by a non-German national player in the Bundesliga. So it's exciting. He actually broke Pierre uh, Aubameyang's previous record held by a Dortmund my player. player alone. It was a wonderful, wonderful day for Bayern Munich uh, right. in, in that game. Um, I didn't know he's not a German national. No, he's from Poland. Polish okay, I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Okay. And then kind of some cool things because we had already clinched the championship. We were able to see some of the younger players come up and play. Right. And some of the guys that have been sitting on the bench doing a really great job warming them for us. Got the opportunity to get a couple minutes in. One of them being an ex-FC Dallas player um, was a defenseman here just two, three years ago, I want to believe, I want to say, somewhere in that range. I wasn't here at this point. I don't know. Yeah, he was part of the partnership that Bayern Munich and FC Dallas have where they kind of use FC Dallas as like a farm team to some extent. Like it's not that bad because obviously they're still a professional league in the MLS. But that's um, weird. They do recruit from the organization from time to time. That's weird. And he got to make his first appearance on, well, more or less on Father's Day. It was the day before, obviously. But for his dad to be able to see that, you know, his first international appearance outside of the MLS. Right, right. You know, that was... That was probably pretty, pretty cool. His dad tweeted about it, which was like, wow, go dad, you know how to tweet. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not everyone's parents is, happen to be bad at social media. Yeah, and then we started a, well, we didn't start. He came on later in the game as a midfielder. Croissants, I want to say is his name. I probably just completely butchered it, but he's a 17-year-old. And he's one of the younger players that have ever made their appearance for Bayern Munich, so he's in that top five group of youngest players in the history, so right, that's pretty right. cool. When you still have players like Lewandowski doing well, like, he's not old, but with sports, age is very different. So he's getting sports old, as I like to call it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when you still have him scoring game-winning goals, it's like, we don't need you, need you for the younger players, but you still need to grow as a team. The way I would look at it for a lot of these younger guys, at least on, on the roster currently, would be to truthfully get the opportunity to learn from some of the greats because like Bayern Munich is what they consider a build team. There's always somebody to replace the next person because they have that kind of money. They don't, like if they need to go get somebody, they're going to go get somebody. Right. Whereas, you know, there are other teams like my Premier League team, Newcastle United, who if they don't bring players up through their younger ranks, like their U20 teams and they U18 don't have the teams, money to get they don't people. have the money to go out and get who they want. So, right. speaking of that. You guys won? Yeah, three to zero this morning, right before I had to head into work. It was uh, quite the, the ending as well. In fairness, opposing team took a red card, so they were down, oh, okay. man. It was... 
I didn't know this. Yeah, it was 11 on 10. So, you know, realistically, if they didn't win, I would have been really, really upset. But did you score goals before this guy was taken off? Um, I don't believe so. All three goals know. came after the red card. <laughs> I was um, going to say, no, maybe you earned it before that happened, but it doesn't sound like you did. Well, in the first half, it was pretty even ball control. It was, I think, like... 51 to 48, or 51 to 49, as I say That's math. how math works, yes. Yeah. But it, it was very close percentages, shots on goal, corners, everything in the first half. So we probably still would have won, but would we have won by three? Probably not. But yeah. at the same time, I'll take it. We're inching ever closer to that top 10. And as a Newcastle fan, I know we're not going to ever be that great, amazing team that's going to win it unless well, we get new ownership, which... We- Fingers crossed, you know, it doesn't look good right now because the Sheik is kind of being thrown into a lawsuit related to uh, privacy laws related to yep. sports events that he's uh, streaming via a company he owns, I guess, something along those lines. Okay. It's, it's a hot mess. It's all tied up in court right now in, in, uh, in the United Kingdom. I think with a team like Newcastle, I don't know premier league enough to say this for certain but it seems like they're the kind of team where as long as you're at least in the middle of the pack you know you're doing well for your team as long as you don't have to go down that's the main thing with most teams that are not all the way at the top of the table and i know i speak for all newcastle fans i hate mike ashley i'm so ready for him to be not the owner of our team and i'd be careful about speaking for all of anybody but uh, go on pretty straightforward like this most of the organization is and fans are not fond of mike ashley especially after letting uh, our previous head coach go and not renegotiating contracts they were negotiating and put some air quotes around that it seemed like every time there was a serious conversation about renewing that contract for our previous manager it just immediately went down the toilet and everybody knew Rafa Benitez was he was the coach that we brought in while we were relegated and he brought us back to the main league and then his first season back got us into the top 10 albeit it happened in the very last week but it happens it happened and that gave the organization a boatload of money because if you finish top 10 and that year we also i think were one of the final eight teams in the fa cup so we got money from that as well and they're like oh bye i didn't know know you got money for being in the top 10 so like that tells you how much sports are not my bag so yeah in the premier league and most major league major soccer leagues around the world there's like a purse i guess is the best way to describe it like there's a group of money that gets broken down amongst the organizations based on their performance okay so if you win the championship you get that bank um and if you You were too white to say that and if you are doing well in the fa championship again the same so it's kind of the same thing with like the dfb pokal on the german side of the world it gives an opportunity for those lower clubs to still earn a nice paycheck if they play well against these larger unbeatable teams so no real challenge there, I guess. Yeah, what do you got to lose? You know, just go after that money. This week in the sports news, it's a lot of coronavirus positive everywhere. You get a positive test and you get a positive test. Yeah, it definitely seemed like this was the week where the positives were not positive for sports. Well, you have to expect that when testing happens, you're gonna find cases. And that doesn't sink into certain people's heads, it freaking should, because this is an important thing in moving forward. You have to find the players who have it and quarantine them in order for your whole league not to get sick. I don't want another round of mumps. Yeah, and so there's two leagues that are really kind of petrified about this currently, more so than others, the MLB and the NBA. So the NBA has already committed to playing the remainder of their regular season and playoff season in Florida, which is having a spike right now, which a lot of players are speaking out about not maybe wanting to play. Well, but then you have to discuss, Florida's kind of a big state, so you have to discuss where these spikes in cases are happening. A lot of them are happening in southern Florida. Where they're trying to go to play these games, not necessarily a huge spike right now. There is a spike, but not as bad as in southern Florida. And people are making cases on the Players Association side that as long as health and safety protocols are followed, they're not taking commercial flights to get there, and they're making sure that only a certain amount of people are allowed into this like little bubble of theirs, yeah. then everything will be fine. But I can understand that 
certain players have people in their lives they don't want to get sick. And it's kind of the same way with the MLB because they they also currently were just hanging out at their spring training facilities until the Players Association and the MLB owners finally got their heads screwed on right and decided to actually play a season or not. Well, they just completely shut down Arizona and Florida, right? Yeah, so the organizations were told by the MLB to basically go home. Um, Do your training at home. Yeah, until we figure out what what we're going to actually end up doing, whether it's going to be traveling from city to city, if they're going to do hubs, whatever, they're going to figure out their plan still. But some players have already tested positive for COVID, so they still have to be quarantined, get better before they're allowed to come back. Yep, and and those steps are going to continue, I think, probably for the remainder of whatever sports are going to play. You have to be realistic. Somebody is going to get sick. It's just a matter of if they respond to it properly. Well, the leagues are too big. There are too many people involved, whether you're talking about players, managers, coaches, anyone they come in contact with. It's a giant cesspool waiting for someone to get sick. So you're going to find people are getting sick during this whole thing, and you're going to have to quarantine each and every one of those people. Otherwise, this isn't going to work. We're not going to be able to come back and play anything. And and the MLB still kind of drags on their arguments. As you know, they they wanted to play 70 games uh, with a playoff bracket of some short, just kind of the same style as they normally would, not change anything. Um, the ownership is saying, we'll pay you 60 games in an extended playoff bracket style. And so we're basically back at it again where well, like, they heads were... bumping into each other. They were going to vote on the latest offer from the MLB, right? The Players Association was going to do that on Tuesday, and then the MLB went, no, wait, we're taking that off the table and changing things. Yeah, and then they were supposed to vote again today, and throughout the day today, it was fun watching my phone uh, update me with the commissioner coming out and stating that he's taking certain requirements off the table from ownership for the next season, like forcing everybody to have a designated hitter for next season, both in the American League and National League in the 2021 season, as well to expanding the playoff picture, which a lot of teams are against, players are against, because that means the already 162-game season is going to be even longer if you're going for the World Series. My thing is, why are we discussing that season when we haven't even started playing right now? So that's one of the big pickles with what's going on with the season is the fact that there is a collective bargaining agreement that has to happen before 2021. So the players and the owners want to be, like, they they want to be done. They both claim it. They want the season to start. If that were the case, we'd be watching baseball. Right. Because they don't want to lose any more money coming into a season where CBAs in the past have led to lockouts for three-quarter seasons, almost whole seasons. I don't see them playing baseball this year. Yeah. Like, the way everyone is trying to negotiate and dancing around and doing whatever, there's just no freaking way that we're watching baseball this year. Yeah, and so now the CB or the Players Association wants to wait out and see if this is like the final, final offer from the owners. And if it is, they honestly, based on what I've read and seen and heard, they're ready to go. It's just a matter of understanding at a certain point, the longer they wait, they're going to have to play 60 games or less. Like, we're running out of time for the season. Right. Normally right now we'd be discussing who's going to the All-Star game. There hasn't been a game played. We're clearly not going to have one of those this year. Right. So, you know, it's... I just, I think it's really discouraging as someone who watches baseball with you. Like, I'm not a huge baseball fan. I'll watch it whenever we go to a game. But the discouraging thing for me is that this is showing me that they don't care about their fans. All they care about is their own position, whether it's the Players Association or the actual league itself. All they care about is doing what's good for them. And they don't care about what's good for people who enjoy this sport. What's or good watch for, this sport. What's good for the sport? We'll just say what it is, period. They they are truly in it for their own wallets to be a little thicker. We've discussed this before. People are willing to watch whatever sport right now. They just want something else to focus on and think about and distract themselves with, which is what I've used sports for. I can tell you that right now, because on lunch today, I turned on ESPN and watched literally the National Cornhole Championship. It's a bar (laughs) game, for crying out loud, and it's on ESPN now. People are watching the Marble Olympics on YouTube. Literally anything at this point. We are going crazy, and we need sports. And thank goodness the European 
markets have figured out how to do their sports in the meantime. Yeah. Well, we do need to keep an eye on how it's happening with the Premier League and the Bundesliga because if anything goes south for them, you know we're definitely not ready for sports because yeah. they're being cautious and we're definitely not being cautious enough. And if anything, it, it very well could be, you know, the first couple chapters of how we come back to sports are written by watching what's being done overseas. You right, know? right. Germany, originally at one point this week, was contemplating putting a thousand fans in front of the DFB Pokal Championship in Berlin. But and, that was ruled down, right? And the German government and the DFB, or DFB came together and came to the conclusion, yeah, it's probably not the wisest decision, you know. Go figure. I mean, not that they were concerned that it was going to be a giant risk because the country is pretty well getting things under wrap currently. But at the same time, they were not wanting to be the cause of the next spike. Well, you have this unnecessary risk with something that's that contagious, and you don't need fans there technically in order to play the game. But the NFL Players Association had to come out and advise their players not to work out together because of what's going on with the disease. And I just... I felt like that shouldn't have to be said, but I guess it did have to be said. Yeah, it definitely had to be said because there were a lot of quarterbacks that were working out with their new offenses, like running backs and wide receivers, without an O-line. Like Tom Brady in Tampa Bay literally had Gronk and the boys out there playing on a high school football field. But no one's been cleared to do team practices, right? For the NFL, no one's been okayed to do this. Currently, it has not been approved. So why would you just go ahead and get down there with the boys and start? You know, I I really don't know. Like, I I understand the pressures of trying to sync yourself together without the longer off-season training camps that they normally would have for the NFL. But at the same time, it's like you're putting everybody at risk that's there and then everybody that they live with and then everybody that those people come in contact with. And what's crazy is they don't think about that. They're just like, we're going to be a real good football team this year. Well, but I mean, some players are even wary about coming back at all because they think having to get tested and quarantined and all this is going to lead to very thin teams playing when it finally comes around to being time to play football yeah and that's definitely a possibility just because there's only so many position-based players that a roster can hold so unless the nfl expands the roster for them temporarily which i don't think would be a bad thing or maybe give them the capability of having like a b roster ready to just slide somebody else in i think that's the more appropriate response but they'd also have to be under the same quarantine standards that the a rosters are under otherwise Agreed. you're literally doing nothing to protect the organization i mean it's less of a concern for a sport that i love way more than most of your sports which is the nhl because uh, technically you don't need a huge giant line of people in order to play the game that's true the only concern is with the nhl unless they're expanding the benches everybody's sitting shoulder to shoulder on the bench <laughs> that is a problem and so you know like unlike the german leagues and The Premier League, where they had everybody sitting six feet apart from one another as players, that would have to go all the way around the rink. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you'd have people sitting in the penalty box. Just remove the glass, and then they can just jump over when it's their turn. Whenever it's their turn, yeah. (laughs) But so far, they've tested 200 players in the NHL, and 11 have tested positive. A lot of people think this is a bad thing, but my opinion is that that isn't that bad of a ratio. And it's better to find out now before you've gone into full training camps and gotten everyone sick. Yeah, so the NHL's had some experiences with mumps spreading diseases. Mumps. That are, you know, as she states, mumps. And controlling those situations. Obviously, the concern with COVID, unlike mumps, is you don't show right away that right. you have the symptoms. And you could be spreading it in that period of time. Now, the nice thing about it is... We're finally starting here in North America to get enough tests to put organizations through these types of testing programs. Having 200 currently is still below what the NHL wants to do. Well, testing is going to continue as we go through this process while we move from phase two, three, four, so on. I personally don't mind people using the test for sports, and I know that might be a little controversial, but I want my sports. 
Yeah. And then as well, too, in that news of things, we in previous weeks have discussed about the fact that we were certain the Canadian teams and cities that were, well, not teams, the Canadian cities that were available for being one of the hub cities were off the table. Canada just had to go there being perfect as freaking always. Yeah, they're... And they're allowing them to do what they... They're calling a cohort quarantine, which is the weirdest thing I've ever heard of, which is basically you don't have to be quarantined by yourself for two weeks. You can be with a little group of friends. Yeah. So Canada announced uh, that they have also approved the NHL return to play proposal and will not require their players to be quarantined for 14 days coming across the borders. So that's a huge step if there is a Canadian and U.S. city for the the hub cities. It's possible now that it could just be in Canada because they have three available cities for the hub city options, which are Edmonton, Toronto, and Vancouver. I personally would rather it not be in Canada, but I think that's just my American bias. But in the reality of it, you got to think that those cities are probably more prepared to host tournaments like this than they are in the States and well, any since, of the hub cities, let's be honest. Since America doesn't seem to love hockey the way it's supposed to, uh, I would agree with you. Yeah. I think that's all the news I have for NHL side of things. I don't know if you have anything else. I mean, I don't really have anything else except to maybe recommend checking out all the stuff on YouTube going on right now for the NHL. I've been watching it for months, but they're always coming out with new things. Right now, I think the NHL's YouTube is working on the top 50 saves of this past season. Yeah, so these are the types of things that you normally see during the offseason, and it's a little weird waiting for the season to like get into the playoffs right now, and then them going like, top plays of the year for the season and it's like okay we can maybe argue year but not season because the season's not over i mean technically the season is over well the regular season currently but yeah the playoffs are usually included in those highlight videos so you know it would be nice to maybe they'll see if they remaster them or something like that in between the shortened off period but they also my team has been doing a thing where they talk about the seasons leading up to winning the cup and showing those games and stuff like that so that's been fun to see especially for the ones where i was too young or i didn't watch hockey it's fun to see especially when you look at their hair and how ridiculous it was back in the 90s oh yeah some of those throwback mullets from back in the day were uh, they had the flow they had the flow by (laughs) definition for sure for book news. I think two of the most exciting things happened this week and I want it to happen sooner but freaking isn't. So I noticed on the Twitter that Hank Green, who I've I think mentioned in almost every episode so far, he shared an announcement that from a certain point of view the Empire Strikes Back is happening in November. So I looked it up and it turns out it's the 40 year anniversary of the Empire Strikes Back for Star Wars. And so they have gotten 40 authors together to write a little story about characters that you might not have noticed in the Empire Strikes Back. And Hank's doing an adorable little one about a scientist that works on Hoth and I'm freaking excited for it. It comes out in November and you can pre-order it now. The only notable authors for me, since I'm not huge into the sci-fi unless it drifts in through YA, is uh, Hank Green and Martha Wells, whose book series I'm reading right now, The Murderbot Diaries. So I'm excited for that. And then Maureen Johnson announced a new book coming out from her Truly Devious series. And technically it happens after the series is over, but I'm really excited for it. It's called The Box in the Woods. And basically Stevie Bell and all of her friends from her school are going to be camp counselors and they have to solve a murder while also there might be another murder happening at the same time. So you get more of that mystery and more of the sort of quirkiness that comes from Maureen Johnson's books. I'm very excited about this. It's happening on April 8th of next year, which is not soon enough, but I'll take it. The only thing I take issue with is that she's come out with four books in one series after not completing a different book series that she's written. And I'm, I'm a little sad that that happened. I can definitely see how the saltiness could arise from that. 
you know, I know you're saying that it's kind of a quirkier series, and I, I can understand where you get it from with Maureen. Having met her, she is definitely an interesting person. <laughs> when I was in college, this is a little backstory about my history with Maureen Johnson. When I was in college, I would have my roommate read me Maureen Johnson's tweets while I was getting ready to go to school for the day. Yeah. So, like, not only is she funny in book form, she's funny in Twitter form, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate that in her books, despite being salty about that series she hasn't completed. And the last piece of book news that I have thoughts about is that a federal judge declines to order a delay on John Bolton's tell-all book about Trump administration. And despite this, there's still a lawsuit in the works because they are currently seeking an order to seize the profits the Bolton would get, which I don't understand how they have an argument for that, but there's that going on. Supposedly this is coming out on Tuesday. Who the frick knows? There's no real cover. I don't know what's happening. All I know is that if this book reveals as much as people are saying it's going to, then why the hell did he just wait and write up a book instead of doing anything about it as it was happening? Yeah, uh, I don't know John Bolton's opinion as to why he would do something like that, but... Uh, I can tell you the answer, it's money. Yeah, well, let's be honest, it came down to more along the lines of trying to protect his job in a very hostile work environment. We'll just leave it at that. I think that's the best way to put it. I still think that he should have done something sooner. The next thing I have, since it's towards the middle of the year and it's getting to that point in time where people are feeling the crunch on their Goodreads goals, I decided to do the mid-year book freakout tag. I also did it last year on my blog. And it's basically a handful of questions about what you're reading so far and what your reading is going to look like for the rest of the year. The first question is the best book that I've read so far this year. And technically it's a novella. It's All Systems Read by Martha Wells. Best book I've read all year so far. And I've read in the 60s at this point. So that's saying a lot. I'm going to name mine. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, depending on your personal preference of the well, title. we're in America but my preference is Philosopher's Stone, so we'll go with that. Yeah. And then the second one is the best sequel you've read so far, and for me, it would be The Hand on the Wall by Maureen Johnson. That's the last book in the Truly Devious series, so you get a lot of things wrapped up in that one. I've got a great second book as well. It's called Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. You're not even done with that one yet, so that doesn't count. I'll have it done here this week at some point. The third question is a new release you haven't read yet, but you want to. I don't know that I 100% want to read this, but it sounds really interesting. It's called The Shadow Between Us by Trisha Levenseller. It released in February, but I was tentative about getting it because it's about this girl who wants to kill the king and take his throne, but it turns out there's another plot to kill the king. So she has to stop that from happening in order to kill him herself so she can take the throne. And that sounds really interesting, but apparently there's a romance ele element in there okay. that happens while she's trying to protect him. I'm not all about that, but still it sounds good enough that I still want to read it. And then uh, for that answer to that question, we're looking for recommendations. Yeah, really. You need to just go through my library and pick out the ones you want to read. Just a random book, be like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, that book. And then you'll hate it and never want to read again. Let's not do that. All right. The most anticipated release for the second half of the year, for me, it is A Sky Beyond the Storm by Saba Tahir, which releases on December 1st. And that is the conclusion for an Ember in the Ashes series. And it was technically supposed to come out in like... April of this year I want to say and it was being pushed back till next year and I was devastated and then the publishers announced like a month ago or so that it was coming out on December 1st. Well that's exciting so you don't have to wait completely till next year but you get it almost right before like an early Christmas gift. Exactly. The biggest disappointment for me this year was Milk and Honey by Rooney Cower, I want to say is how you pronounce that last one. And this is a poetry collection that everyone and their mom have read, except for me. And then I read it in May and I was disappointed. It's a lot of, I want to say half thought out poetry 
And that sounds really bad. I'm not a poet. What do I know? Maybe I just don't understand. So for me, it was really hyped up. And then for me, it was a big letdown. Yeah. The biggest surprise that I read so far this year actually also happened in May. It was a net galley read and it was Take Me With You by Tara Altabrando. It was that book that I was telling you about that was like a sci-fi horror novel. Yeah. And now I just want to read sci-fi horror novels all the time and that's a hard one to find. Yeah, it doesn't sound like something that would necessarily go hand in hand with one another. I don't know, creepy AI? Yeah. Favorite new author for me this year was Alwyn Hamilton. She's the author of the Rebel of the Sand series. It's the series that I wanted to pick up and then didn't for years because I was in a book buying band. So I finally got to buy those this year and I loved it. That was a really good series. Newest fictional crush. Um, my husband's sitting in front of me, so none. I have none. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I read mostly young adult and as a 30 year old woman, that's just weird. Yeah, if you're attracted to teenagers, we ought to have a real conversation. Right. And most of my favorite characters that I read about are morally gray characters, and I don't want to get romantic with them because, like, I don't want Kaz Brecker anywhere near me, to be completely honest. And my newest favorite character is Murderbot from the Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells. I didn't want to repeat myself in this list, but I love him, them, and I really <laughs> wish that I could just binge the whole thing through. But for some reason, I told myself I can't. Who is your newest favorite character? You have read a new book this year so far. Yeah. Um, newest favorite new character. I, I know that I'm going to end up liking Dobby in the long run. And I know he's trying to be, like, good. But also bad enough to keep Harry away from where he is. So, like, I understand the underlying factor is he's trying to protect Harry. Like, he wants to protect Harry but also put him enough at risk to protect Harry, which makes absolutely no sense, but also makes him such an enjoyable character so far. That's a really weird answer, because well, there are so many different characters you could love at this point, halfway through Chamber of Secrets, and you like Dobby. It's, it, well, the other pick that I would have would what be like, as a joke, obviously, like Moaning Myrtle or Colin <laughs> Creevy or something like that, you know, like, those aren't really the people that I would go and be excited about. And there, there's also the main character, his friends. Those are all options. But I've I've read the first book of Harry Potter before, so like I don't count the main characters just because I already knew who they were. And so the new characters that have been added, Ginny Weasley, I've barely even seen her in this book. She hardly exists. Right. And well, then... Maybe this is a question for later on in the year, because you're going to meet some very interesting characters throughout the rest of the I series. I think for an annual wrap-up, this would probably be a better question. Yeah. A book that made you cry. I don't think any books have made you cry so far this year, but for me, it was Second Chance Summer by Morgan Matson. It was my first Morgan Matson. It was the book that I had told you about where they went to the lake house for the last time because the dad had cancer. Yeah. And that alone is enough to get you emotional and in an emotional space and then other things start happening. It was a good book. I've never read Morgan Madsen before. Apparently she does this a lot, really heavy like contemporary novels. She likes to make people cry, but make with very good storytelling. <laughs> and a book that made you happy for me, mine is Josh and Hazel's Guide to Not Dating by the writing duo Christina Lauren. I didn't want to like it when I picked it up, which is a weird thing to say when you're going into a novel, but I had picked it up because I've heard so much about them and it was the one novel that had a trope I knew I liked out of everything else they've written. It is a friends to lovers and you get this really funny, quirky relationship that I really like. I didn't want to like it, but I did. Is that hate to love? Hate to love and friends to lovers is very different, but judgy, he was very judgy of her at the beginning, so I guess that worked. Yeah, no, I meant the hate to love is in the fact that you hate that you love it. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> hate to love is another romance trope. Yeah. The favorite book to movie adaptation that you saw this year, at first I only thought my answer could be Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone because I thought that was the only one that I've seen. But if you include comic books, technically we watched Gotham together, which I really enjoyed. 
And we also watched the Umbrella Academy, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, I was kind of shocked by that. I thought the Umbrella Academy might have been a little too dark for you, but I'm learning more and more about how dark you like your comics <laughs> in the television series. I guess. And even though I haven't read either one of those comics, I really enjoyed the show. So technically those would be my favorite. But if we're only doing things that I've read before, Harry Potter has to be the only one that I've done. Yeah. Favorite review you've posted this year? I think this question's a little weird, but my favorite is House of Earth and Blood by Sarah J. Mass. It came out in March, I think. And my review was basically just me screaming and slamming on the keyboard because I enjoyed it so much. Yeah. And when I enjoy a book so much that I make sense, but it's also kind of nonsensical, so it's all, perfect. All about that all caps rage. Not rage. This is just like, I love it so much. I have to tell you how much I love it. And if it doesn't all make sense, then just realize that my basic re book review is me going, eek. So that when I can be so overcome with emotions while I'm writing a review, that's my favorite. The most beautiful book I've gotten so far this year is also House of Birth and Blood by Sarah J. Mass. Because look at the cover. I tried not to repeat any of these, but I've hardly bought any books so far this year. That's the only one that I've bought that actually has a really gorgeous cover. And the last question is, what books do you need to read by the end of the year for you? It's all of Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, I've got a tough wall up against me currently. <laughs> Not that tough. I need to finish my Harry Potter reread, so technically we both need to do that. And then also I need to reread the books in the An Ember in the Ashes series, because the next one's about to come out. And also I've got three NetGalley arcs that I need to read. Otherwise, I'm free to move read, which is what I prefer doing. What I've been reading lately, one of them is a NetGalley arc that I was gonna wait to read but I was really in the mood for and it's called I Hope You're Listening by Tom Ryan. I gave it four stars. It is a YA mystery and as we've discovered lately I'm not a big mystery fan but it's about a girl who is out in the forest with her friend and all of a sudden her friend gets kidnapped and she's the kid that's left behind. And what it's like to sort of rebuild your life after something that traumatic happens right in front of you. And this girl ends up going down this road of helping people solve their own missing persons cases and ending up in the middle of a missing persons case by herself. And so at first I thought I wasn't gonna like it, but the characterization is really good. And then it's got a cult in it, which I'm all about that, I guess. And it's got this house that the way it's described is like the perfect setting for being mysterious and spooky. It sounds like a weird but kind of interesting book. Like, it, it's like, because I watched my friend get kidnapped, I'm an expert on solving kidnappings. Not necessarily that. She just puts the right people in the right places to solve kidnappings. And so for me, that makes a whole lot of sense. Like, I don't want to be in the thick of it solving it because I know too much about what happened to my friend, but I know enough to get you in touch with this person, this person, this person. So I thought it was really good. I gave it four stars, which for me is like a glowing review of any mystery thriller because otherwise I just, I hate them normally. Right. The second book I read this week and kind of regret reading is Burnmark by Laura Powell. It's a book that I picked up with you when we went to my first ever library sale and bought a bag of books. For like nothing. Ten dollars. Yeah. So the price per item was like 60 cents, which is about what this book is worth, which is a horrible thing to say. I know. I still gave it two stars because I like the premise. You can't return it and get your money back. <laughs> no, I can't. But I wanted to like this book so much and I was so disappointed because it was basically... It was basically a historical look at what the UK would look like now if it had had witches. So you've got this whole different section of the government whose sole purpose is to deal with the witches and the witch crimes and witch testing. And it's this thing that's genetically passed down, but every once in a while you'll end up getting someone who's got no witches in their family and all of a sudden there's a witch. And it turns into this giant power struggle between covens and then covens versus the government and how the government's trying to hold them down. And it, like that premise is really good 
but the execution sucked. And so it felt like a waste of my time because I wasn't invested in the characters. And then on top of that, there's no world building. I understand it's supposed to be like modern day United Kingdom, but you've got this element that you are not explaining. So how am I supposed to get sucked into this world when you don't tell me what's going on? So for me, it really fell flat and the lack of world building is the thing that pushes that over the top for me. Like the characters sucked, but at least I could get behind them if I knew what was happening with the magic system. But yeah, I, I do remember you being kind of excited when you started this and then throughout the week it was just like grumble, 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 grumble. Right. And I read I Hope You're Listening in one sitting. I spent the rest of the week reading this. So I've just gotten so slumpy throughout the week and I haven't read anything since I finished that book. So I'm really hoping to move past it and read some good stuff next week. And this week you ended up reading through chapter 12 of Chamber of Secrets, is that right? Uh, I believe further in than that, but I know that we're going to be reviewing through chapter 10 today, so that would put us through the chapter with uh, Dobby trying to beat the hell out of somebody with a bludger. So, um... Well, I think Harry is that somebody, but... <laughs> not a big secret. How do you like your second foray into Harry Potter? I am starting to realize that I like the first book a little bit more. I feel like it was kind of a, a little bit of a slow starter, like, in comparison. I, I don't know why I feel that way. Like, I think it's probably because we had all the world building in the beginning of the first book, and that kept my brain locked up in the first couple chapters. Yeah, I think the magic being so quick to happen in the first book, because right away you're seeing this world that you've never seen before, if you're reading this for the first time. Whereas you're returning to the Dursleys now in their super muggle ways. Well, yeah, and they've locked up all of Harry's stuff. The only thing they're letting him keep in his room is Hedwig. Right. Um, well, because otherwise Hedwig dies. Right. And and then he's, like, jokingly threatening the whole family with magic. They don't know the whole time that he can't do magic outside of school, mm-hmm. which I think is a fantastic, just little abuse of power, you know, on Harry's part. But at the same time, all the crap that they put him through, they kind of deserve it. I was going to say, Harry's been actually abused his whole life. Him taking a dig at them, I'm not going to blame him for. Yeah. And so at the very beginning, you're kind of going through more or less like Harry's birthday. And you also cover uh, the period of time where Mr. Dursley's trying to get a promotion, like, or like a big ticket sale is yeah. what it actually is. He's just buttering him up and buttering him up and buttering him up in the scene. It's and so over the top. That chapter is so over the top. Yeah, it's like, you need to be here and you need to be doing this and you need to be here and you need to say this and... Harry, I'll be in you, my room making and no Harry, noise. And Harry, you need to be in your room making no noise. And, and Harry's like repeating it over and over like, yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do, stupid. I'm not supposed to be present because yeah. you're afraid my magic is going to ruin your chances. Well, I don't know that it's necessarily the magic and the fact that he just hates Harry, but yeah. Yeah. And so he's like forced up to his bedroom last minute and... Also during the chapter, he's when he's in his room, he's really overthinking things. Like he's not having any letters sent to him or anything like that. It's very isolating. Yeah, so like he more or less locked in his room at this point. And he gets up there and there's somebody chilling on his bed like, Hey, I'm a really weird elf that you've never seen before. Here I am. My name is Dobby. I think it's funny that Harry wants to say, what are you, but instead says, who are you? Like, you're still polite, even when you're in shock. It's so great. Yeah, it's definitely more of an ambush moment where he's just kind of sitting on his bed. I love the description that they use, his bulging green eyes, just chilling, you know. Have they called them tennis ball eyes yet? Um, They may have. I didn't remember that reference exactly, but... It's well known. And then every time, like, he's talking to him, and if he feels like... He said maybe the wrong thing, like Dobby does, at least. He starts beating himself up and, like, making a crap ton of noise. And he's like, just relax. Everything's okay. And Dobby's like, no, it's not. Well, I mean, the house elves kind of have a bad situation going on. Yeah, they're 
definitely kind of like Harry overly abused uh, with their own levels of magic, you know, to themselves. Well, their masters force them to do these punishments and that's so ingrained in them that they just do it themselves, which is a whole different level of mind effery. And then to try to persuade the Dursleys from allowing Harry to go to Hogwarts again, he makes the dessert for this all-important meeting levitate off of the countertop to basically the highest cabinet and then just drops it and it explodes chocolate in every direction. I thought it came off the top of the fridge, but I could be wrong. That could just be in the movie. Yeah, and I, I shouldn't say that. It's a violet pudding is what it was. It's a dessert. Yeah. Pudding is dessert over there for some reason. Whereas when I think of pudding, I think that weird slightly jiggly thing. And then while they're trying to figure out what's going on in the kitchen, a letter gets delivered because Dobby's too busy doing his own thing, which we end up finding out eventually he's the one that stops the letters as well from Ron and Hermione coming to him. So like this whole time he really wasn't isolated. It was just Dobby kind of being a jerk trying to persuade Harry that, hey, you don't even have friends at Hogwarts. Why would you want to go back there? I think the reason that the other letter got through is that it was a government letter, so he had no way to stop it, but I don't know that for sure. I know Mafalda Hopkirk is the one who warns Harry that you can't keep doing magic or you're going to be thrown out of school, which, okay, so I have a problem with this, and I think a lot of other people do. Since Harry is a wizard in training, living in a muggle household, he definitely for sure can never do magic outside of school. It's supposed to be anyone who hasn't graduated yet is not allowed to do magic outside of Hogwarts. However, however, you've got a family like the Weasleys. Everyone in there, including the parents, happens to be magical. So how would they know if a child is the one who did the magic or if it was an adult? Yeah, that's kind of the standing point where it's difficult. And I think that's why Harry got blamed for Dobby's magic, obviously, is because he was the only person like registered to that address that... He's the only known magic user in that household. So of course it was you, Harry. Who else could it have been? And then, you know, obviously the flying car scene, I I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that. You Uh, enjoyed that so much. I I shouldn't be surprised. I should say the flying car scenes, because there's multiples in, in those chapters. You like car shows, so I really shouldn't be surprised that you also enjoyed a flying Ford Anglia. Yeah, the throwback to the Anglia was definitely something that is very outdated, and nor would it be a car I would ever want to own. It was a piece of junk. But it got him to school, didn't it? Yeah, well, yes. But <laughs> the you know the breaking of the bars, like they roped up the bars on the window and yanked the bars off the window, and then the Weasley, one of the Weasley twins, jumped out and helped him pick the lock so that he yeah, could yeah. get out of his own room to go get his things. Mm-hmm. And then they had to break into that lock and then get all the things up right. before anybody else even noticed what was going on. It's like. How do you not hear a flying car outside of your window? Like, it's got to make the same engine noises at least, right? Like, unless they have like a silencer on the back of the muffler or the engine. Like, how is that even possible? I like that they learn how to do muggle things, like picking locks, when other wizards would just use magic to do it because it shows that they care about more than just what's happening in their own world. And it's convenient that they did it that way because obviously if they had done magic, Harry would have been... Expelled pretty much at that point. Right, right. It would well, have been like, ba-bing, double whammy, you know? A, a lot of things that happen are a little convenient. That's one of them. But I just want to know, this is one of those things that, as an adult rereading the series, I just don't understand. How could that happen? And then Mrs. Weasley not immediately go to some sort of authorities within the magical government and go, get this kid out of this freaking house. He's being abused and locked up and there's bars on his window. You have the proof there. Why don't you pull him out of this freaking house? Yeah, I can kind of see the argument there, but what are they going to do? Come barging in through the door using magic to get him out? Like... I'm not saying the Weasleys pull him out. I'm saying the government take him out of that house. Obviously, it's an abusive household. Well, that's what I mean, though. Like, the, the magical government is trying not to be seen by things. They don't want people to know that they exist. So. Well, but the Dursleys already know about magic. All they would have to do is show up at the door and take Harry. Also, there are memory charms, as yeah. you'll find. Yes, yeah, they've mentioned them in this book uh, just a tad bit. 
And then, so they get him back and you start to see like the garden gnomes. I think there was a little different interpretation from the movie and what the book covered. And obviously that's for another show, but I remember playing the Harry Potter Chamber of Secrets game. And that was one of my favorite parts of the video game was running around just beating up on the gnomes and throwing them out of the garden. Like there was a challenge that you had to do so many in so many seconds. And it was really frustrating when the gnomes would just come back, but like literally you throw them out, they get really dizzy, and then they just they either make it back or they wouldn't. And it's exactly the same in the books. So. You have to spin them around really hard so they get dizzy, dizzy and then you and then throw, throw them, them so as they far can as come you back. Can. Yeah. I really like seeing different places in the magical worlds because you get to see the way different people live. And I really love the Weasley house, the burrow. I just think it's perfect. Yeah. And so you start to learn, like, the family numbers and the way they live in the borough and so on and so forth. And you have Ginny being Ginny and just drooling all over Harry the entire time. And it's like, he's a shaggy hippie preteen. <laughs> like, what are you drooling about? You know, like... Well, I think it has more to do with him being famous and what he's famous for, but I understand also i was an 11 year old girl at one time you can like stupid boys for no reason yeah and then they obviously get back to well they use the flu power which i think was great because harry ends up completely in the wrong place like in the relative area that he meant to be but in the dark side of the stores and things like that and he's lucky he got turned out into nocturne alley and not somewhere else because that's close to where he was supposed to be going yeah he could have ended up anywhere yeah. And then if I remember correctly, Hagrid finds him again and like, hey, come this way. I'll be your savior. And then they come back to the house and all that stuff. And they're on their way to the infamous nine and three quarters. And everybody makes it through. And lo and behold, we find out later down the line in the storyline, Dobby is the reason they can't get through the portal. See, and they literally slam their things into the wall in the process of trying to make it happen. This is the part of the books where you have to remember that Harry and Ron are stupid little 12-year-old boys and that they're going to make bad decisions. Yeah, like flying a not-invisible car through the air over... Well, it was supposed to be invisible. <laughs> yeah, clearly it didn't work. Um, he had a freaking L. And and they just kept coming, uh, I love it, up and out of the clouds to try to figure out where they were at. Yeah. And like my whole thought process is, you're in a flying car and it's go- probably going to go faster than a train because you're flying. Like, how often... Did they have, like, every 10 seconds or something? Cause, like, no, it's going to be longer than that because they're flying from London all the way up into Scotland. Yeah, but my concern is having been on trains from London to Scotland, from that same train station, not nine and three quarters, but from that train station, King Cross, it's not a direct route. So, like... That's you, why they had to check in. A lot. You'd have to basically be under the clouds the entire time. They're... It's always a change of direction. And so, like, it hit close to home for me because I'm like, you're full of crap because that's not possible. You're bringing too much adultness into this children's book and we need to move on. Suspension of disbelief. Yeah. It it just didn't believe it at all. And so they get there and they slam into a whomping willow, which is the oldest tree on campus is what they were saying. Something along those lines. It was one of the older trees on campus. I don't know about oldest because you later learn what year it was planted. So if that's the case, then all they have are young trees. Yeah. And then we get to meet the most full of himself character that I think will probably exist in the (laughs) entire series. Some people love this character and I don't get it, but at the same time, I kind of get it. I should say that we already met him technically in chapter four during the autograph session that he was having. Um, At Flourish and Blots, yeah. Yeah, but like you saw just a glimpse of him. He, You didn't really get a full taste of his ego. I think a glimpse is really all you need of Gilderoy Lockhart. I don't disagree with you (laughs) in the slightest. Um, So you get introduced to Gilderoy Lockhart and... If I'm correct, it's like the first class they have with him, and he releases the pixies to fly yeah. around. And then you very quickly learn Gilderoy Lockhart is the fakest fake fake magician or wizard or whatever you want to call him that could exist on the earth. He has no magic, hardly at all. He can do magic, he just can't do what he says he can do. Yeah, so he's basically the guy that would, on his resume, right, he's got 14 years of experience in dark arts, when in reality he has zero. So he's a very good storyteller, and I think that, uh, you know, he 
might have been a good salesman in his day, one way or another, because he sold a bunch of BS to everybody in the, the Wizarding World. Well, I mean, you'll come to find later in the series what he actually does and doesn't have experience with. So he, uh, I will say, is good at research and memory spells. And that's all I'll say. Gotcha. And then you get the first instance of it's Filch's cat that gets petrified. Petrified. Yes. Um, Poor Mrs. Norris. Yeah, so I know I'm not supposed to like her, but I have a cat. So first instance of Chamber of Secrets being kind of announced to the world as well in that instance. Um, At least this year. Yeah. So when it comes to the book itself and the books previously, it's the first mention of Chamber of Secrets in the first two books. And so, obviously, there's all these murmurs going around and all that stuff. It seems that Harry is always conveniently there whenever something bad happens related to it. So the whole school is like, well, we know who the heir of Slytherin is. And it's like... Wouldn't you think the same? If you were in a different Hogwarts house, wouldn't you think the same? 110%. (laughs) He's always around. He's always around when something's going bad related to the Chamber of Secrets. Mm -hmm. And the Chamber of Secrets, everybody knows about it because they're checking out the books like crazy. Like Hermione is like legitimately angry that she can't get the book that she wants. I know that feeling. Yeah. You know, that that's the thing. And then one of my other favorite scenes, is it's so stupid, but I really thoroughly enjoyed it, was the death day party for Nearly Headless Nick. I felt real bad for Nearly Headless Nick when I read that. That was hard for me to read as someone who's so empathetic. And I will give you that I also agree with that statement at the end of the party, but everything leading up to it was hilarious. I felt bad for knowing Myrtle when Peeves was picking on her, but at the same time, that is peas in a nutshell. That's something I dislike about the movies, and we'll discuss it later. But the fact that you have this hilarious character who brings all this silliness into the books, and you're just going to take him out of the movies as a whole. Yeah. But moving on. And I, I just enjoyed the scene because they left a feast, a Halloween feast, to go to this death day party. Where they can't eat food anything. food is spoiled and rotten. And, you know, Ron's theory on it is that it must be so that they can taste it because it's so bad. Well, it just sort of gets stinkier and smellier yeah. and grosser. And maybe they can actually taste it. Yeah. And then we go into kind of the next scene there in the next chapter where you start to see the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall is, if I remind me if I'm correct, but Colin Creevy is the one that's petrified in, in that scene. Or is that later? That might be later, later by the look he's giving me. But you have the writing on the wall, which is the, the blood writing, right? On the wall itself. Well, it looks like blood. Yeah. It doesn't taste like blood, so it must not be blood. I don't know. I've never licked a wall at Hogwarts. (laughs) But they keep trying to clean it off and off and off. Uh, And when I say they, I mean Filch. Filch. And Filch is ready to expel Harry because he's there as he's noticing it. And again, it kind of comes down to Filch being like, I cleaned all these things today and I don't want to clean this. And starts trying to clean it and it just doesn't go away. And he's just absolutely losing it. Like he can't figure out how to clean it. And so it's just another step in the chaos that is setting up for the Chamber of Secrets' finale, I would imagine. Just another level of, ooh. It's building up the level of everyone's emotions. Yeah. Everyone is getting more on edge and more scared as time's going on, as more and more petrifications happen, and this threat is really unseen and unknown. Yeah, and, and then, like, Filch is just, like, absolutely losing it, just staying there, like... Well, if your cat was petrified, wouldn't you feel the same? Yeah, and he's just sitting and waiting and sitting and waiting and sitting and waiting, and uh, Malfoy also kind of creates this thought that he might be the heir of Slytherin because... Or at least to Ron and Hermione and Harry. By making the comment about, you know, the mudbloods and all this stuff. I can't believe you said that word. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. But it's part of the book and it's part of the story plot, so. It was a joke. Yeah. I think there's this combination where Draco is constantly trying to push himself up to look bigger and bigger and better and, you know, like a bigger deal than he actually is. But then you've also got Harry who latches on to ideas that he has. Whether they're right or wrong, he just latches on to whatever the idea is, whatever sinks into his head. And then I think the next funniest scene that came out of that chapter is when Harry, Ron, and Hermione come walking out of the girls' bathroom and Percy runs into him. Yeah. And they're like, what? He's like, what are you doing in the women's restroom, like <laughs> the girls' bathroom? And then just kind of just, in a way, gives him one of those speeches like, don't do that again, it's really weird. 
weird type of a, yeah. a brotherly conversation, which I thought was really funny. I also like when Harry's the one that's being treated poorly because they think he's the one that's the heir of Slytherin. When Fred and George are just going around like, yep, seriously evil wizard coming through. Because that just speaks to who they are as characters. And, like, they don't give a flying fudge what's going on. Because, obviously, it's not Harry. Right. And then you have uh, everybody's favorite game, Quidditch, in Chapter 10. I don't know that that's everyone's favorite, but as a sports fanatic, I know you like Quidditch. Yeah, and so you have Gryffindor and Slytherin playing one another. And you have a... Bludger, who's literally just following Harry everywhere he goes, Mm -hmm. and is trying to knock Harry off, and the only advantage is that Harry has the capability of turning a little bit tighter and faster than the Bludger can move. And then you have the twins sitting there protecting him and protecting him, and everybody else is just getting obliterated on the field because your two beaters are so busy trying to protect one player. One player that the rest of your team is just getting slaughtered everywhere and... This is one of the most dangerous things I can think of Dobby doing in this book. He does a lot of seriously messed up things throughout this book to try to protect Harry and then this one I just don't think Dobby has a full understanding of Quidditch or bludgers or how they work because if he did he wouldn't have done that. Well in fairness he's a house elf so like... He doesn't, doesn't get imagine, to lo- he doesn't get the opportunity probably to watch very much Quidditch. You'd, right. you'd have to understand like he's always working. So Harry, being the brave Harry that you know always seems to act and be um, being an idiotic Gryffindor, moving on, sacrifices himself to allow the rest of the team to be more successful, and then just gets clobbered at one point when he's not paying attention. Like he sees the golden snitch over uh, Malfoy's shoulder. Which I think is the funniest thing, because it's just like, it's just right here. How do you not hear it, stupid? Right, right. It's got hummingbird-like wings, almost, like, the way it flaps at those high velocity. So it's like, it's not silent. You you have to hear it. And Harry stops and is just dumbfounded by the fact that Malfoy doesn't know it's right there next to him. And that's when he gets hit by the bludger. (laughs) Well, isn't he reaching for the snitch and then he gets hit in the arm that's held out? I don't think that's 100% correct. I was under the impression that he... Well, no, you're, you know what? You're 100% correct. Now that I'm reading a little summary that I've written up. So leave it to the wife to know the story a little bit better than me. When I tell you I've read this more than 20 times, the whole series have been read more than 20 times. I'm not joking. Yeah. But go on. Yeah, so... Um, he gets hit by the bludger uh, as he's grabbing the snitch and falls out of the sky and then obviously is like, yeah, I got it, you know. And then you have Gilroy Lockhart trying to be the hero coming out on the pitch at the end of the match and he thinks he's doing something good by making the pain go away. Problem is he also took all the bones in his arm. Well, it doesn't hurt anymore. No, you're right. It doesn't because it's just a wiggly. It doesn't do anything it's else like, either. Uh, you know, the used car. Wiggly guys, you know, <laughs> full of air, you know, swinging Just arm in around. the one arm, though. Yeah. And so, you know, he ends up going to uh, the hospital wing and is told that he's going to have to regrow bones. The thought of that just... Right. Ugh, just right. does not sound like a comfortable thing. But that pretty much wraps up through chapter 10 at that point. So there's not really much else after that scene. So you have the bone regrowing process began and that's pretty much where it ends right and then you're gonna finish the book this week for us to talk about next week yeah i'm already through quite a few more chapters and just gotta polish off the remainder of it looking forward to finishing it so that i can give a final summary of the book and then the week after that we will be doing our comparisons from the movie and the book itself That is the hope, but there is the possibility of it not happening because I do have to go to Oklahoma for about a week, week and a half. So we'll have a little two-week pause in the middle. We'll try to keep social media going. At least I'll try to keep it up as much as I can. And I'm sure Liberty will be capable of trying to update things as well from, from her computer while she's up in Oklahoma. And this next week, I'm sort of at a weird spot with my reading. Because like I said, I'm sort of in a slump after finishing Burn Mark by Laura Powell. And, you know, when we went to that library cell, I bought the first and second book in that series. And so it's like... Did I waste 60 cents and I'm not going to read that next one? Or do I pick up that next one and just power through it? Because it is significantly shorter than the 
first one. It's about a 25% less than the first one. My hope for your sake would be that if you do pick that up, that the sequel to the first book is by far better. Well, the next one's called Witchfire, and basically the two main characters from the first book are recruited into a government program, and so then they have to do secret witchy things for the government in a foreign country. So that sounds more interesting. It's just with less pages, I can almost guarantee the world building is going to be the same or less than the first. So I'm sort of sitting at a crossroads about whether to read it or not. But in the meantime, I'm going to pick up a different book because I need to read something at some point. And the book that I've chosen is The Cruelty by Scott Bergstrom. I believe that's how you say that. And I had bought this book years ago and apparently some stuff came out about this author and that's why I never read it. But I paid for it already so I might as well read it and get it off my TBR. It's about a girl whose father vanishes and she has to set off and try to figure out what happened to him. So she's traveling under a new identity, she has to deal with assassins and spies and criminal masterminds, and she has to discover this weird truth about her father and her world and it's shocking. So she's trying to bring back her dad alive. It's kind of like taken in reverse. It's kind of an interesting play on it. I know in like Taken 3 it starts to get all funky like that too where you see the family trying to save the dad in one of the scenes so yeah. like, it I, sounds interesting. I think this sounds really interesting but some sketchy stuff came out about the author when I first got it so I was just not sure about it. But someone made a solid point the other day about JK Rowling where like if you've already bought the source material you don't have to feel guilty about reading it. It's if you continue to put your money into authors who have said and done things you don't agree with. Right. It, it's a completely different story because money talks. So since it's on my shelf and I'm trying to do the bookshelf challenge where you get your TBR down as low as possible by the end of the year, I want to read it and get it off my shelf. And I'm not going to read the next book in the series that much is for certain because of everything he said in the past. And then I'm thinking about throwing in the next in the Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells because I love Murderbot. I want to read it. But I'm trying to sort of take my time with this series because I don't want to read it all in one go and then get to that point where I don't remember what happens in each specific book because I just read them all at once. So I might read that if I choose not to read Witchfire. I felt like that's a good option for me. It's the third one in the series and you know everyone's favorite antisocial AI goes out on his own to figure out the world again. So that would be fun. Well and you've always been obsessed with like sassy AI, sassy robots, like that's that's your thing. I blame Star Wars for that. Yeah. And recently I got BB-8, I got K2SO. Like yeah. Murderbot is just another one of those sassy AIs that I have to have in my life. So that's what's coming up this next week for us. And obviously we'll keep our eye on the sports news that comes around because I'm sure hopefully we'll have an answer on some things this week as well. Or we'll just keep doing the back and forth dance. Yep. One of the two. But thanks for checking us out, giving us a listen. We should have all of our social media linked down in the notes. And we really appreciate paying attention to our social medias and handles and things like that throughout the week. But we'd like to thank you today and have a good one. Bye! Bye.